Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and of course, my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. How are you this week, Paddy? As per usual, Gary, I am absolutely fantastic. Um, I don't have much going on. It's just a normal week over here. I presume you're in the same position, you know, normal week for you, placement, the whole shebang. So we won't spend too much time on that. What we will spend time on is continuing on the last episode or continuing on from the last episode, I should say, because we really only got about <laughs> a third of the way through the stuff that we want, wanted to cover uh, because, well, especially me, I just fucking rattle on, talk shit all day and Gary just nods along to it. Um, but we're going to continue with the topic of foundational health management practices, habits, whatever you want to call this stuff. Do you have anything to say on that, Gary? Any thoughts from, or rather, since the last episode? No, I mean, we had kind of anticipated that we might have a lot more to cover than that that could be covered within a single episode. Um, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to elaborating a little bit further in this one. I think that a lot of the stuff in the last episode, at least some of the training and nutrition stuff you would have been familiar with, I think maybe we'll touch on some things in this episode, however, that maybe you don't think about quite as much. Mm. and it kind of goes without saying that if you're listening to this and you haven't listened to the last episode it's not going to make all that much sense well it's probably still actionable it's probably not going to make the most sense uh, because we kind of laid the front can't even work i can't even speak laid the framework and foundations for what we're discussing why we're discussing it in the last episode so go back and listen to the last episode if you haven't otherwise continue listening because the first thing we're going to talk about when we're talking about these foundational health habits that you can engage in so thinking back again we've covered all the basics we've covered the you know diet nutrition training sleep stress management we've also looked a little bit into the kind of psychosocial aspects of this stuff do you have a spiritual practice etc etc so again go back and listen to that stuff outside of that or continuing on from that the first thing we could say that would be a foundational health practice and this one seems pretty obvious once you uh hear it and um, but a foundational health practice would be to not do drugs what do you have to say on that gary yeah i mean like you know you say it that it, that it's that it's obvious and it should be obvious but but honestly i think if you listen to the way that people talk about drugs let's say even even in the last decade because that's obviously what i'm familiar with as an adult even in that time i think there's been a bit of a shift in the way that people in their 20s, for example, think and talk about drugs. One example of that would be cannabis, for example. Um, there's been obviously a big push and success in some countries with the legalization of cannabis, for example, and the normalization of cannabis consumption. Um, and in many areas of the world, cannabis consumption uh, has increased. And often what you'll hear is one side of the story there. For example, you'll hear things such as you know, all cannabis is a super safe drug. Um, if you you can you can drive on cannabis compared to alcohol, you know, there, it doesn't lead to the same levels of violence as alcohol and all these sorts of things. However, there are specialist considerations that you might only see in certain fields. For example, I'm currently on psychiatry placement. And one of the things that you see in psychiatry quite a bit are people who are, have schizophrenia and or psychosis or psychotic episodes as a result of cannabis use and this is something that can occur after a single incident um, incidents of smoking cannabis or can occur uh, with cumulative risk over time which is obviously more common 
So that's just, that's one of the complications that you could experience as a result and of cannabis. just just on right. that. Like that sounds like it's like oh, that's just a freak random thing. I know two people that have schizophrenia or mild schizophrenia. Both of them are heavy cannabis or were heavy cannabis users in their teens, early twenties. Now correlation causation hard to say, but at least we have or at least there is some anecdotal evidence to support the the link there. Um, so I don't know, like wouldn't be for me <laughs> yeah and i mean you know often people will turn around to that argument and they'll say and i won't belabor this point too much because it's not the purpose of the podcast but people will turn around to that sometimes and they'll say well oh, but the evidence on that is only clear in people who are young and who are, have a developing brain but i mean you're talking about adolescence up to you know 25 the brain is still very much um developing and even thereafter it's still plastic while most things will have developed the brain is still plastic beyond the age of 25 to some degree so you know these things do not come with zero risks so if you're trying to maximize your health a foundational practice of not doing drugs is very very wise and the thing is you have to always think of health in terms of the cumulative risks and also the risks uh, that could occur you know as, as almost like black swan events or things that occur just out of nowhere for example Many people might, you know, try cocaine in their uh, 20s, for example, maybe even if they only do it once or twice. But you could spontaneously have, you know, a heart attack as a result of taking cocaine just once. Or it might be that you just try benzos or something once when you're drinking and then you get a heart attack and die or something along those lines. These things do happen. I've known people in my own town who have, you know, passed away from um, such instances. I've known, you know, people who have gotten in serious trouble from drinking alcohol. I've certainly been drunker than I should have been myself at certain times. And when you think back to those events, even if you think to an episode of maybe when you were drinking in your teens, when you, let's say you got way drunker than you thought of, and maybe you didn't know where you were or you stumbled out onto the road, it only takes, you know, one car to come along and hit you to, to end your life. So you could be doing all of these things all the time managing your blood lipids and your blood pressure to think about decades long risk, but you mightn't be protecting yourself against imminent risk that could kill you in a second. So look, I'm not preaching here. You know, I absolutely uh, still drink alcohol. Um, I've been drunker than I should. I haven't really taken drugs to be honest, but you know, there, there's, there's always time to kind of recalibrate your own understanding of risk. And these things are important both for the short term with the imminent risks and of course, for the long term, because the vast majority of illicit drugs, including alcohol, do cumulatively increase your, your risk of different complications later in life. Yeah. And look, as Gary was saying there, both of us are idiots. Uh, so Absolutely. it's not like we're saying, oh, you should never do this. Never, ever. You know, we would never even look at that stuff. We're such bastions of perfection, health, everything. No, look, the two of us are idiots, you know. So this Absolutely. is a place that we've done stuff that we probably shouldn't have done been stupid with this stuff but if we're talking here about baseline foundational health practices i wouldn't go back and do that that stuff you know so look we won't again labor the point too much but doing drugs is probably not a beneficial health practice and obviously again it goes without saying because i know again it's one of these arguments that people will say well oh again like a you know alcohol is legal and cigarettes are legal and they're damaging whatever i'm like okay cool don't do either of those things eat as well yeah. you know <laughs> i'm not saying that they're good to do i'm just saying don't do drugs right um, and again look lsd heroin 
they're all different and they all have different effects and it goes you know we should say it some of these are potentially beneficial in a therapeutic setting for certain populations again lsd for example you know there potentially is a benefit for that you know there's obviously a uh, use for stuff like cocaine or cocaine like derivatives like lidocaine and stuff in a medical sphere so i'm not saying you know oh my god get rid of these drugs war on drugs let's in- increase that no i'm just saying if you are looking to maximize your health probably not a great idea to be doing recreational drugs at least and um, and we can argue about drug regulations and we can argue about oh should we have a better system for dealing with drug violations and whatever else but that goes beyond the scope of this podcast and oftentimes those discussions are completely asinine and just come from a place of a person wanting to do drugs themselves or a person that's just vehemently opposed to drugs having never read any of the research so about 90 percent or more of that conversation is just stupid to listen to so we're not going to contribute to that by, by talking about it. Right. But again, baseline fundamental health practice, don't do drugs. Now there's a bit of a caveat to this and we'll discuss it later on when we're talking about certain like medicines and stuff, but we'll talk about that later on. Now, the next thing is something that we have talked about before and we'll probably talk about again. In fact, I know we're going to talk about it again. It's in our uh, podcast list uh, to, to cover. Um, but this is managing your heart disease risk. Right. So do you want to say a little bit on managing your heart disease risk there, Gary? Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to heart disease risk, there are certain things that you can test for um, quite easily and certain things that maybe you can test for quite easily. Okay. So some of the things that would put you at significant risk of cardiovascular disease that you could easily kind of find out would be, you know, do you have, do you have type two diabetes? Obviously, you know, if you, well, that's actually not obvious, but you probably know if you have type two diabetes, um, at least if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably proactive about your health. You probably tested these things. Um, but if you're someone who's maybe at risk of type two diabetes, for example, maybe you're someone who is obese, sedentary, eats poor diet, it's worth, you know, assessing where that is at. So type 2 diabetes is a massive risk factor for cardiovascular disease. High blood pressure is the same. High um, blood lipids or dysregulated blood lipids, particularly high LDL cholesterol or ApoB. Generally, what you're going to do when you're assessing for, uh, or if you go to your doctor and you ask for uh, tests to, let's say, assess your cardiovascular disease risk, they'll probably do is order... Um, blood lipids or they'll just say cholesterol to you and it's generally that bad cholesterol or LDL cholesterol that you're going to get a reading on there can be some more granularity to that for example looking at ApoB particle number or it could be um, something that's a little bit separate but related and that would be lipoprotein A or little a LP little a and that's something that uh, is somewhat genetically determined or has strong genetic um, influences and can be tested at kind of a single point in life to see where your risk is at. The only thing with that is that you can't really change it all that much. There are some drugs that have kind of been released the last couple of years or tested the last couple of years, but from a dietary perspective, not really that much. So for the most part, you want to have an idea of where's your LDL cholesterol at? Where's your blood pressure at? That's certainly worth testing for um, because it's such a simple non-invasive test. You want to have an idea of uh, whether or not you're on the diabetic spectrum when that could be through an oral glucose tolerance test or fasting blood glucose or HbA1c. 
Um, and then beyond that, there's of course many other things. The one thing that doesn't require any testing for would be um, family history, family history of cardiovascular disease, incredibly important to be aware of. I've got, you know, a bilateral family history of early cardiovascular events, events at 60 or under um, on my dad's side and my mom's side of the family um, in males. So that's obviously something that is quite important for me to be aware of um, because regardless of whether or not you know it's via a particular gene or the effect on blood lipids, you know that the risk is there and we know that that carries forward to future generations. So that's something that's certainly worth being aware of. Um, and particularly if someone, if your family members have had cardiovascular disease at a young age, for example, if you know that multiple males in your family have had a heart attack uh, in their 40s, then you definitely want to be checking for your cholesterol levels and things like that. Because sometimes what you can have is familial hypercholesterolemia, where you've got very high levels of, of cholesterol that generally aren't just related to diet and that would be have more strong genetic determinants, sometimes single genes, sometimes multiple genes. And these are things you definitely want to be aware of and intervene on quite early in life in order to uh, reduce your risk. So there are some of the kind of basic screening things you would do. There's more advanced uh, screening depending on where you're at with uh, your cardiovascular disease or disease risk. You might need an, an echocardiogram or something like a coronary artery calcium score at certain times, but that's some, they're kind of more specialized tests that people, that your doctor might order to stratify risk or if you had established disease, for example, if you had an arrhythmia, um, a, an irregular heart rhythm of sorts, they might do an echo or something like that. Um, but for the most part, you're looking at, you know, knowing your cholesterol and related tests for lipid panel, your blood pressure, um, diabetes risk, family history, and then, of course, smoking is another huge one. OK, we've obviously already made that point, but I just wanted to reinforce it there because very often what people talk about when they talk about smoking, they think smoking, lung cancer. But smoking is obviously a risk for many, many other diseases. Um, and one of those would be cardiovascular disease as well. Um, so if you're thinking about all that stuff and you're following the guidelines that we've discussed on previous podcasts regarding nutrition and exercise for preventing cardiovascular disease, I think you're doing, uh, making a lot of proactive steps there. Yeah, we should just kind of just round out that point as well, because when we're looking at managing your heart disease risk, like it's one thing to just do a load of screening and go, yeah, mm. I know where I'm at. We actually have to know what we're going to do after that, right? Yes. And we'll talk about family screening and stuff in, in a second, because that's actually really important. And it is one of the other baseline health practices that we can engage in. Um, but you go to your doctor, you get a load of screening. What are you going to do then? right? How do you know what to do? Now, what you would do in this case, if you're listening to this podcast is you'd go back and listen to our podcasts on heart disease. But in general, what we're looking at then is, okay, what am I doing with my diet? What am I doing with my exercise patterns? Right. But let's assume you're a position, you're in a position where you're like, I actually can't go to my doctor. I don't have the means. I don't have the whatever. You can still be preventive in your approach. You can do stuff that is relatively known or relatively well correlated with reducing your heart disease risk, such as eating, you know, fruits and vegetables, right? Really straightforward practice manages your heart disease risk, both on the blood pressure end and on the, uh, the like, uh, can't even speak the like heart attack end we'll say, <laughs> right? So it's like, okay, cool. We're doing something really proactive with that. Now, most people are aware fruits and veg, 
pretty good to have in your diet, right? And um, we can all do also do stuff like assess our saturated fat intake, right? We can be like, okay, well, where like where is my diet at currently? How much of that is coming from you know saturated fat? Now that's a little bit harder to do if you're just coming to the diet from a position where you're like, I don't know anything about the diet, but you can use an app like my fitness pal. And while it might not be perfect, you can at least you know total up your day, total up the week look at it then and go, okay, wow, actually more than 10, 15% of my diet is coming from saturated fat, right? Because what we want to do is keep that number or the percentage of your overall calories, we want to keep that below 10 to 15% for managing heart disease risk, right? 15% is if you're doing everything else right. If you're not doing everything else right, or again, you've done some sort of like, you know, family screening or health screening, you're going to go, okay, I need to actually make sure that it's below that 8% or that 10%, I should say, I don't know where eight came from, 10% of total calories, right? And there are two major, easy, easy interventions. Where's my saturated fat intake at? Where is my fruit and veg intake at? Cool. You've assessed that. You can go forward. That'll also be what you're going to do from a nutritional perspective to help actually manage your health disease or your heart disease risk. You're going to start looking at where's my saturated fat intake at? Where are my fruit and veggies at? Okay, that's where they're at. How does this then affect my cardiovascular disease risk? You know, am I eating enough fiber? Am I actually getting uh, below 10% saturated fat? If you're not doing those two things, then all the, on- the only other lever that a doctor is going to be able to pull is more medication, right? So you have to look at those two things. Now there's, oh, we're vastly simplifying things in this because again, this is kind of more of a quick hitter. We've done an entire podcast series on this stuff and um, There is some stuff on the exercise front, which also goes into managing your blood pressure, you know, again, just getting cardiovascularly fit, like it's in the same thing, you know, cardiovascular system, cardiovascular fitness, like, okay, there's something going on here. If you have a resting heart rate of 35, because you're incredibly aerobically fit, like that's probably going to be some way protective against heart disease in the future. So we want to have some sort of fitness practice. We want to have our blood pressure in check as a result of our fitness practice. And we want to effectively do all of these things to both manage our, or I should say prevent our heart disease risk. But then also if we have a diagnosis or we have a, an increased likelihood probability to assume that like, Oh, I might actually have an increased heart disease risk. Then you need to be looking at these different things. Do you mean to say on that Gary? No, no, that's all spot on. I suppose actually just to finally finish it out, and we actually are going to talk about it later on, but I'm just going to put it in here. Like if your doctor prescribes you a statin or something, it makes sense to to take it here in terms of managing your actual heart disease risks. I know a lot of people are hesitant to that stuff, you know, but we'll, we'll come back to that point in a little while, right? So the next thing, and Gary touched on it in the last section there on heart disease because it's actually incredibly insightful right? It's actually, it's probably one of the very base foundational health practices, right? And obviously I know that's what this whole podcast two episodes is all about. It's like, oh, what are the foundational health practices? But like, this is, this is so informative. I'd be like, right, actually, I'd almost look at this before I even look at anything else, right? Because family screening or screening the health of your family, it tells you so much, Okay. Because I know these days, especially with, you know, the companies like 23andMe and all these other companies that do genetic testing, like we have this kind of 
belief that it's like, oh, this is, this is really scientific. I'm going to get some deep insight into, you know, my risks. I'm going to get some deep insight into, you know, what's going to go wrong with me as an individual. How can I improve my health? You know, this is, this is genes, genetics, baby. You know, this is the, this is the, this is the code. This is what God wrote, you know, like this is how life, this is what the, 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 the code for life, right? You know, people really get deep into that rabbit hole and they're like, genetic testing is this panacea tells you everything, right? But we are stupid. And I don't just mean me and Gary. I mean, like scientists. I mean, the whole medical sphere. Like, well, yeah, we know a lot about genetics. We also don't know a lot about genetics. Like the amount that we do know definitely is not in the bigger bucket than the amount of stuff that we don't know. Right. And that's for a few reasons. It's not because we're not able to interpret the genetic code or anything like that. It's more so the fact that, okay, we have the letters, but we don't actually know how that looks in the environment. Okay. Because your environment changes things, you know, we have polygenic or multi-gene diseases. You know, it's not just like, Oh, here's your one gene for this issue. While there are some instances of that, like you might have an inborn error of metabolism, like phenylketonuria or something like that. You know, like, okay, there's a clear issue. There's one gene, one disease type thing. But ultimately, a lot of the diseases that we find people dealing with are either environmentally induced or they are polygenic in terms of there's multiple genes affecting this thing, right? So how do you interpret your genetic information? You look to the people that have a similar genetic information as you. And who is that? That's your brothers, your sisters, your parents, your grandparents, their brothers and sisters. You know, you look to your close family and then you see, okay, these are the diseases that seem to be afflicting people that have similar genetics to me. Now, not everyone can do this. Like if you were adopted or you know, you're just not, you're unsure of who your actual birth parents are. Like, I don't know, there was your, your parents are swingers or something. I don't fucking know either way. Like there's possible, there's possible reasons why you might not be able to actually do this, but for the vast majority of people, you're going to be able to look at the people around you, the close family uh, connections you have, and you're going to be able to assess what people died of. You know, like Gary said, he's looked at his family history and gone, okay, heart disease here, heart disease here, heart disease here this is something that I need to be aware of. I need to be proactive because on both sides of my family, and again, you get your genes from both sides of your family, there's a genetic potential link here to a susceptibility to heart disease. You know, like I can look at my genetics, like say, for example, I have my 23andMe, I've put it through different apps, Promethease and all these other ones. And I basically have all of the genes for longevity right? Every single one of them that has been identified, I have them, right? I'm, I'm in the, the best population. No one in my family has lived past 89 years old, <laughs> right? So the, I might have all these genes for, you know, living to 100 plus, but no one in my family lives past 89, right? And 89 is like the, the pinnacle. Most of them are dying before that, right? So not to say that 89 is, you know, bad by, by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just saying that like, that's, you know, I have the genes here, but they're not translating into the, the real world, right? Now, that could be because of environmental factors, like maybe they smoked, for example, like my granddad literally got blown up in World War II, smoked, did all stuff like extra that it may be impacted on his ability to live a, a long life. So the environment does matter, which we'll talk about in, in future as well. But do you have anything to say on uh, family screening, Gary? Because this, this is a huge thing that I think people just, you know, ignore 
Yeah, I mean, screening is, is, is a big topic and it's something that um, I think people get really bogged down, particularly in, in the fitness space on, for example, screening for different metabolic markers because they want to find some way that they can hack their metabolism in some way, um, maybe take a vitamin or something that's going to suddenly make the difference to their goals. You know, people will, be, will ask, you know, oh, should I test for this vitamin? And what about this metabolic marker or these hormones? Because it seems like if you can find this one deficiency that, oh, I'll replace this and then I'll be fine. But many of the, many of the things that actually have a big return on investment are a lot less sexy and people are reluctant to screen for. For example, for women, um, cervical cancer screening is actually something that is really important. If you're between 21 and 65 years of age, um, you're typically going to be getting screening more often earlier on in life, every three years. And then later on, once you're beyond uh, 30, I think, um, or once you're beyond, what is it? I think it's 30 or 40. I think it's um, yeah, 35, I thought, but that's literally a, just something like that. Yeah. Anyway, you can look up the guidelines on it or your doctor will tell you, but then it's every five years or whatever. But your doctor will tell you that if you go to your GP regularly, they'll let you know what screening is going to be important for you, whether it's cervical cancer, colon cancer, lung cancer, depending on smoking history, et cetera. And this is also something that's relevant from a family history perspective, because, for example, if you've got a significant family history of colon cancer, that might be something that is screened for because there can be there's different types of, of colon cancer, obviously, and there's different types of inheritable um, colon cancers as well that are really important to be aware of. Similarly, breast cancer, if you know you've got a significant history of breast cancer in the family, there might be genes that are uh, tested for there. So there's screening from the perspective of screening that everyone should get, you know, for example, the, the cervical cancer example or blood pressure, for example. And then there's the things that might be more relevant given your family history. So it kind of starts with being aware, you know, of, of what's there. And if you want to have a look at a kind of a good summary of some of the basic screening recommendations or things you might be thinking about, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, the U.S. PSTF, um, they put out a lot of guidelines on screening showing you the evidence that's there for different screening interventions. And then you have an idea of what you should potentially uh, be looking for because health is so complicated that, you know, it can be a bit overwhelming at times. So it's worth knowing what's worth testing for at what stages of life. Okay. Because there's no point testing for a cancer that occurs typically when people are in their sixties and seventies, like many cancers, if you're you know, 25, because it's just unlikely that that's going to be something that you're looking for. So you, you have to think about screening for things that are age appropriate, sex appropriate, obviously, um, family appropriate, given history and, and risk factor appropriate. For example, are you, are you obese, um, et cetera? So yeah, screening, make it specific to you, speak to your doctor about it, look at the USPSTF um, and see what's really going to give you a good return on investment. Now, the only, only unfortunate thing is that USPFDF, USP. Yeah, it's US specific, so it's not, yeah. but it's. But even then, it's actually just a really difficult website to use. <laughs> which, it is. Which is it actually is kind of annoying. Yeah. 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 But anyway, we won't go too deep into that because. The, to, just one thing the, the HSE or, or, or NHS, they also have really simple pages on different types of screening. For example, if you look up cervical screening, cervical check in Ireland. Um, you will find good information there. The USPSTF is just he helpful because what it shows you is the list of all the potential things you could screen for and the level of evidence for them. But go on. 
Yeah, it, it is quite good, but again, it's just a difficult website to use. Um, yeah, but anyway, look, family screening, that's kind of the baseline of screening. Before you get into any you know, sexy tests, anything, whatever, like, well, maybe you could go to your doctor and say, I want to get a blood test. That's not too sexy or whatever. But, you know, family screening, that informs so many of the conversations that you're going to have around health and screening in general, right? Like, why would you get colon uh, cancer screening if no one ever in your family has ever even had colon cancer? You know, you might think that, but then you might be like, okay, well, actually no one in my family has ever lived past 35. <laughs> so maybe they haven't been able to develop colon cancer, right? So screening is a, a really important topic and we'll probably do an entire episode on the pros and cons of different screening methods and different thought processes around screening and testing and whatever else. But from a baseline perspective, Family screening tells you so much. Even if it's just a case of you get the death certs of you know close relatives, tells you so much, right? Tells you so much about what you are potentially going to die of due to your genetics, right? Now, obviously, look, not everyone dies due to diseases or genetic issues or whatever. They get hit by a car or you know they were in war or whatever, right? So it informs things, but it also doesn't give you perfect insight, right? But another thing that we can layer onto our screening is doing a bit of, we'll call it environmental screening, right? And I don't just mean like the screening of the environment, like is the is global warming going to kill you in the next five years or anything like that? That's not what I necessarily mean. But what I mean by environmental screening is like, what do people in your environment die from or get sick of? You know, like you might live in, I don't know, a certain area of your country and I don't know, they're on granite rocks and all around it is radon, you know, and like everyone's getting fucking radon poisoning or something. I don't know, right? But stuff like that does actually happen, you know? If you notice in your town, your village, your fucking area, whatever, that there people seem to die disproportionately from a certain disease or a certain uh, malady, illness, whatever, that's something to look into a little bit deeper. Is it something in the water? Is it the socioeconomic status? Is the like, what is it, right? So, there's not much else to say on that except to do a bit of screening uh, in terms of, you know, what do people die of from in your environment? Now, it's actually quite hard to get that information. Uh, it's not like, oh, this is really fucking easy. You know, it's obviously easy if you're, I don't know, in London, for example, you might be like, okay, well, what do people die of in London? You know, now that's not perfectly correlated because people come and go in London all the time around the world, whatever, right? But at least it gives you some better idea of what's happening in your environment right so do you have anything to say on that specifically in terms of like just looking at your actual environment you live in cork you know what do people die from in cork in your area anything to say on that yeah i think it's really useful to actually be aware of this because um you know there can actually be considerable um variation in, in air quality even in, in different areas and and this is kind of one of those things where you know being in a developed city isn't necessarily protective you know some areas can have very poor air quality and most just on that like even the other day i was just looking at my weather app and obviously i live in london at the moment and there was just a warning being like oh people that you know exercise outdoors or the elderly shouldn't go out now because air quality is particularly poor you know and if you're living in somewhere like i, I lived in boise for a while in idaho and they oftentimes get inversions and basically trapped they're in a kind of valley they often get inversions and they basically trap smog down in that valley because of the differences in high and low pressure. Um, so if you're in an area like that, potentially increases your risk of disease, various diseases. 
Absolutely. And um, there's there's loads of great websites, um, including for Ireland, where you can look up air quality in your area, even on a given day, even up to a different uh, to a specific hour. There, there's quite specific stuff out there. So that's something you can look for if it's something that is relevant to you. Thankfully, um, for most of us, a lot of environmental um, carcinogens or um, toxins that would be very relevant have been eradicated. Like, for example, like um, asbestos and coal that people would have been exposed to when working previously. Um, a lot of people have been, uh, you know, not exposed to these anymore. Like even open fires and stuff are not allowed in, in newly built houses and stuff. But you might still be living somewhere where you are exposed to those types uh, of exposures. So um, occupational uh, risk is obviously something that's really important here. Most occupational health and safety has, again, eradicated a lot of these risks. But still, long term risk can still be very relevant, um, even in hospitals, for example, if you're an x-ray technician simple things like wearing your um, lead gown and things can be protective. But if you weren't to do that, then that used to be the way it worked in the past where people would just notice over a number of years that uh, they were starting to get uh, radiation uh, damage. So these things are quite relevant. Um, water, obviously water quality is very relevant as well. Um, and generally- Especially in somewhere like Ireland where like yeah. 50 odd percent of the water just gets wasted from the pipes because the British, built the pipes you know and all the pipes that we did build in the fucking celtic tiger area are probably not fucking good like i know a few like builders obviously and they're like what the fuck were they doing in the 90s they were just laying pipes down arseways sideways and fucking wherever else so look that's probably an issue down the line that irish people are going to have to to deal with because you know lead pipes are generally not great and if you're leaking half the water out that's not great and if it's leaking half the water out who the fuck knows what's leaking into the water so thankfully, overall, um, public health tends to look after a lot of the environmental exposures that might be relevant for you, but you mightn't be aware of all of them. You know, asthmatics notice this a lot of the time. For example, they go to a different country, um, a really overpopulated city. Some of the cities in China, for example, you really do notice the difference in the air quality. And they might even have to wear a mask to try to um, reduce the risk that they'll have an asthmatic attack. Now, there are other things, obviously, um, radiation from a nuclear disaster or something. Thankfully, we're not too exposed to that. And to be honest, when people think about that risk, like, I know I, don't, I hate to say this because I have quite a close attachment to Chernobyl and stuff, but it's actually not that bad either. You know, as in like, there is, there was a lot of um, ill effects, like particularly things like thyroid cancer, for example, from radiation. But uh, very often people, overestimate those types of risks and totally underestimate the risk they're exposed to every day through their normal lifestyle. Um, the actual uh, risks from uh, the radiation exposure, for example, in Belarus and Ukraine is probably not as high as you'd think if you actually look into the research. So yeah, we won't turn this into a discussion about the pros and cons of nuclear power, but the risks are certainly uh, overblown. But anyway, go on. Do you, do you remember, I don't know if you got it down in the mighty Kerry, but with Sellafield in mm-hmm. England, we all got these fucking packages sent out to us. What, what do they have in them? What was it again? Iodine, wasn't it? It was... Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to say it was iodine, yeah. But anyway, it was basically like, oh, if fucking Sellafield blows up. I don't know why they got real scared about it. I think it was terrorist attacks. I don't fucking know. Yeah. <laughs> but either way, they were like, oh, Sellafield might blow up. Here's some fucking protective measures against it. And it was just some pills, like as if that's going to fucking protect us. Like, 
but anyway, um, just a little bit of a little bit of history there. Um, but uh, yeah, the next thing then is beyond just like the environment, right? Let's look at you as an individual. What do people with your lifestyle? What diseases do they get? Right? Like you might be like, oh yeah, I live in wherever I don't know, idyllic countryside. No one dies here of anything. You know, it's just it's pristine. It's it's perfect. It's one of those blue zones even right but maybe you have a completely different lifestyle than all the people around you right for example a, a, a clear one is like are you a night owl right are you someone that just stays up late into the night right and that potentially does have health risks even if you have the circadian biology to support that that doesn't mean that staying up till 6 a.m every single night because you're playing playstation or whatever is your your chronotype right so what do people with your lifestyle, what ill health effects do they exhibit, right? What happens to them? Then you can start managing that risk and going, okay, well, is the trade-off worth it for you? Are you even, even stuff like uh, going on from, from that, just your, your lifestyle, because it's obviously clearly related is your job, right? Because obviously we can talk about the lifestyle stuff and it's like, oh, if you smoke, people are aware that that's probably bad um, for your health in general. But there's a whole host of things in your lifestyle, but very much related to this is your job, right? Because your job is part of your lifestyle, generally speaking, right? Do people in your job live long and fulfilling lives, right? Or are they dropping dead in their early 40s due to stress or whatever, right? Like they, you, I, I put stress in inverted commas because, you know, stress could be a million and one different things, could be the lifestyle associated with the job in terms of you know, you've got like a Wall Street, Wall Street day trader and they're out fucking banging hookers and doing lines of cocaine at the end of every day. And is it the stress from the job or is it the stress from fucking doing cocaine every day that's causing the issues for these people, right? So you have to look at your lifestyle stressors or your lifestyle related disease risk and then your job related disease risk, right? And are you okay with the trade-offs? Potentially you are. Potentially, again, especially with your job, you might be like, you know what, I'm okay with losing 10 years off my life because it affords me the lifestyle that I want. It's setting my family up X, Y, and Z. But oftentimes you just don't think of these things and don't understand that you're actually exposing yourself to something that's bad for you. Case in point, a lot of people do shift work, you know, and they're working through the night. Like that's a a carcinogen, you know, well, some people would recognize it as a, a carcinogen, right? Are you okay with exposing yourself to a carcinogen for your minimum wage job? You know, you might be, you might have to be, you might be like, look, I have no other choice but to do this job. And it's just a risk you have to take, but you have to do the, that kind of risk analysis. You know, you have to be aware of that and go, what, what happens to people in my job? What happens to people with my, my lifestyle? You know, do you want to say on that Lord Gary? No, I mean, well, yes, I know nothing too much to add. Just reinforcing your point. I think that, um, this is definitely something that I've given a lot of thought to, um, even in terms of thinking of like, right, what am I going to do with my, with my life in terms of medicine? You know, for a while I thought, right, you know what, I'm going to dedicate myself to neurosurgery and just crush myself. But, you know, there, there, there does come the question of like, is this actually going to enhance your life or is it going to significantly detract both short and long term? Because it is quite clear that like long term stress and sleep deprivation has very significant effects on health. That is worth it for many people. Um, for many people who dedicate themselves to a particular career, they find that to be worth it. There's also obviously the financial or economic benefit of dedicating yourself to a career like that, that can also be somewhat protective for health. It's hard to get kind of correct for that. But yeah, you should be thinking about that. 
um, yourself, you know, what's your, what is your career? What is it going to be for the next number of decades? And are there risks that are cumulative over that period of time? Um, some careers might be intense for a certain period of time and then back off quite a bit. You know, that does happen in medicine quite a bit. Happens in professional sports, for example, where you might peak in your 30s and then you kind of back off a bit. A lot of personal trainers will work intensely as personal trainers throughout their 20s, even their 30s. But then later they might, you know, back off a bit and work as a, the manager of a gym, for example. Or they might open their own place and manage other trainers. So your career, you might be thinking about the how much stress you can handle at a particular point in life and how you'll change that then going forward. That's something a lot of people don't think about with respect to their career and career progression, because some jobs you might go into and they might seem really exciting, but there's no career progression and you're actually just working really intensely on that job for 40 years. Whereas in other jobs, you might work really intensely for 10 to 15 years or 10 to 20 years, but thereafter your primary role starts to shift towards managing others, or it might be educating others or giving back in some sort of way, um, in a way that you have more um, professional autonomy, flexibility, et cetera, that comes with that experience. So they're the types of things we should all be thinking about, but are obviously difficult to predict as well. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's look, it's an impossible conversation really, yeah. because you have to weigh up so many pros and cons. You're thinking mainly like, oh, financially, is this worth it? Is this actually going to help me support my family, support myself, blah, blah, blah. All of those things that, you know, most people think of when they think of their job and their job prospects. And then we're telling you, oh, you have to layer on your health uh, or the health implications of that job as well. And you're like, fuck, I don't even know the health implications of that job, you know, especially in this day and age where so many jobs are around that were just not around five years ago, 10 years ago. So you're like, I don't, I don't know what that's going to lead to right but it is a conversation or at least a discussion you have to have with yourself where you're like okay well what are the pros and cons of this is it worth it for me again for a lot of people you might not be even able to have that conversation because you know you just have to you have to grin and bear it because this is the only job you can get and you need the fucking cash you know but anyway the next one then is what do people in your socioeconomic status experience like what diseases afflict them right or people in your socioeconomic status you know because that is different from the different stratifications of socioeconomic status and look socioeconomic status is such a broad thing it's not like oh well you know i have x amount of money that means i'm in the next bracket up it's not just related to that it's also you know the society that you live in etc um and you can see disease risk and life and mortality and all this stuff does correlate with socioeconomic status in a lot of ways like you can go to certain areas in london and just by virtue of them being a, a lower class or an upper class or a middle class area you can be like oh well the people in this area are going to die more frequently from x disease or they're going to live 10 years less or whatever now there's multiple reasons behind that it's not just socioeconomic status um there's a lot that goes into that, but what do people die in your socioeconomic status? Like what do they, what do they die from? What do, what illnesses do they get? Because while you might not be able to prevent certain illnesses because of your socioeconomic status, because you're not able to afford whatever interventions need to happen, there are generally still things that you can do. Like, for example, if you're like, oh, well, people in my socioeconomic status tend to die of lung cancer. You can be like, okay, well, I'm not going to smoke or I'm at least going to try to minimize my smoking 
to an absolute bare minimum, you know? So there are things that you can do. Um, and one of the things that you can do is climb the socioeconomic status ladder because generally being of a higher socioeconomic status allows you or affords you so much more in terms of being able to manage your health. That doesn't mean that you're going to be immune to all these different things. It just means that you're actually able to, you know, buy good food, go to a better gym, get personal training, get coaching, do, do the whole fucking shebang uh, and put your health in the best position for, for, you know, the amount of money that you want to put on, put towards it. Um, so that makes sense, but it does bear noting that there are certain diseases that are associated with higher socioeconomic status. And that should be pretty obvious because you can look at Western countries versus less developed countries. And you can see that there's a difference in terms of mortality. And while we don't often call that socioeconomic status, clearly they're on that kind of socioeconomic status ladder. Like if you're from, I don't know, fucking Eritrea or something, no offense to any of my Eritrean followers. Um, but if you're from Eritrea or something like your disease and health risks are going to be completely different than someone that's, you know, down in Cork or Kerry or whatever. Right. So where you come from the that makes a difference and again it is on the kind of socioeconomic status ladder so ultimately you need to look at that stuff but the unfortunate thing about it is i'm not actually giving you very actionable advice here because how do you look at that stuff it kind of goes back to looking at your environment and looking at what people die of in your environment but also you're probably going to move out of that environment but you're going to have the habits that you built from being in that socioeconomic status you know, like if you grew up and you were just, you know, even upper middle class or whatever, you're going to have built a lot of habits, health habits that, again, facilitate you having better health in for the rest of your life. But if you come from a lower socioeconomic status, you're probably going to carry with you a lot of ill health uh, habits. You know, you might be like, oh, well, you know, what we do when we don't have food is we just fucking buy chicken nuggets or whatever. Like you just, your thought processes are so ingrained, right? Or you might be like, oh, I just go to KFC or McDonald's or whatever. Whereas someone that has a higher socioeconomic status might be like, no, actually, this is what we can do. I have better cooking skills and whatever else that a higher socioeconomic status has afforded them. Do you have anything to say on that, Gary? No, I think that's all good with me. Fantastic, right? Now, the next thing we're going to cover is actually something that we're going to cover in a future episode, but I want to say, well, I'm actually going to let Gary discuss it here. And this is kind of, you know, the things that people die from quite frequently. Like, this is a, an entire topic in and of itself. Um, like the top, we'll call it 10 leading causes of death by age group, because it is stratified by age group. We won't go through them all here and Gary will kind of take it away. Um, but this is also something to be aware of because if you know, oh, well, I'm in the fucking 30 to or 35 to 44 age category, what do people in my age category die from? Okay, it's this. These are the things I need to be looking at. Now, you kind of also need to be forward thinking with this because you might see people dying from, I don't know, heart disease in their 40s and go, that's something I need to think about in my 40s. But like we talked about earlier, some of these disease risks are like cumulative. It's based on what you did 10, 20 years ago. So you do need to look forward, but also you need to protect yourself now. Yeah. And I mean, this is something that's really important to be aware of because it, it again, bring, this is something I've kind of been reinforcing throughout, but it brings in a lot of these things that people don't think about when they're just considering training and nutrition. And an easy example of that is looking at the leading causes of death 
in, you know, 15 to 34 year olds. Okay. A lot of our, our listeners will fit within that group. And that would be accidents, suicide, and homicide. Okay. Now this is a US, this is US course. We should we should know. I think, isn't it? Yes. So I mean that there are there obviously is a lot of difference, particularly with um with homicide in different countries. Um, but accident, suicide, and homicide. If you think of those, I think they're useful to to frame this discussion at least because with accidents you can think of these as for example someone getting drunk and falling and hitting their head um someone falling down the stairs someone getting hit by a car road traffic accident these types of things all these different things fall into that kind of bracket of accidents and just because they're accidents doesn't mean that they're non-preventable because many very often they are an easy example would be um, if you drive a car, are you good at driving a car? Okay. And this doesn't, this actually is not just driving slowly. Okay. Because that's kind of one of the biggest misunderstandings, I guess, about driving is that people think that just because they don't drive fast, that they're a safe driver or a good driver. Um, because you might have very poor control of your car. You might have, uh, I don't know, very poor clutch control, or you're really bad at turning, or you don't understand roundabouts, those types of things. And all those things are, are trainable, you know, you, you can improve your driving skills and potentially reduce your risk of being in a car accident. Obviously not drink driving is another uh, really obvious one. Things like wearing your seatbelt, all these things that are reinforced by public health already are all going to reduce your risk um, of being in an accident that's going, that's going to kill you. Other obvious things, looking both ways when you cross the road, <laughs> not getting too drunk so that you're in a situation where an accident could occur not being on the phone all the time while walking around yeah while crossing the road with the phone up in front of your face you know these types of things that you need to be thinking about additionally uh, something that is more relevant to our health and fitness listeners and that would be um being fit strong and capable of protecting yourself okay um one if you're uh, this obviously comes into homicide as well but i mean if, if depends if you're going to be shot i'm not so sure that your jiu-jitsu is going to protect you but you know if you do even being fit you know like my dad was in a car accident when he was 28 like fucking literally had to get his hip replaced everything like full shabang you know the whole story gary um but they were like yeah you would have died if you weren't fit because he was playing football the whole time you know had a fucking resting heart rate of probably five like really fit guy you know and if he wasn't that fit he would have died so it definitely does play into this. Now, it may not play into the homicide thing, but the accidents, if you are fit, you're healthy, like you have more leeway with being able to bounce back from things. Like think about kids, like they fucking bounce all over the place, mm-hmm. fall down, do whatever, but they have youth on their side and having more muscle mass, being stronger, fucking having better bone density, being aerobically fit, like all of these things, you know, they help you in different situations that you find yourself in. You know, like I've been knocked down twice on my bike, you know, both times, not my fault. I was in the cycle lane anyway. Um, but both times, like I was the, the worst that happened was I kind of got, got some bruising, you know, and that's because, well, first of all, I weigh like hundred kilos. So you take that for what you will. <laughs> like when I hit a, hits a car, like it does some damage to the car. But, um, with that, it had afforded me more leeway. If I was fucking 50 kilos frail, like who knows what happened there? Yep. So get up to 100 kilos minimum if you want to protect yourself. Um, so yeah, look, there are things you can do to prevent accidents. Obviously, 
there are some elements of that that are totally unpredictable, totally beyond your control, but control what you can. Similarly, suicide. Obviously, there are things that can be done about this, preferably earlier rather than later. An easy example of that would be previously, we refer to the USPSTF guidelines on screening. One of those we relate to depression. Obviously, not everyone needs to be, like you don't need to go to, if you're perfectly happy and loving life, at the moment, you don't need to be like, I better go and check if I have depression. Okay. But if you are someone who's struggling with um, your mental health and you have had thoughts of, you know, walking out in front of the car or jumping off a bridge or whatever it happens to be, go to your doctor. Just, just on that, I, he doesn't mean, because people do this all the time. You know, when you have those, uh, I think there's a French word for it, I can't remember, but it's called, it means like the call to the void where people want to do stuff like, throw their phone off a bridge or you know just be like oh what would it be like if i just jumped in yeah what would it be like (laughs) yeah that's not what he's talking about you know you don't need to go to your doctor and be like yeah occasionally i think about like what would it be like if i just fucking jumped off this he means like you're actually sitting there going like should i jump out and come to this fucking bus exactly like that if you think that that would be the better option than living you know those types of things for example um one of the common ones would be when people are driving the car and again, I don't just mean, oh, I wonder what happened oh, yeah, if I move into that truck because like that's that's the male brain. Like that is the male brain. Um if you if you're driving the car and you're thinking, God, you know, fuck this day, fuck this life, I might just swerve and hit into that truck, that'll finish it all. You know, if you're having those types of thoughts, you're having suicidal thoughts, you're having thoughts that are you know, super nihilistic, etc. I'm not going to go through a full psychiatric screening here, but if you are someone who's clearly on the spectrum of low mood, very irritable all the time, very anxious every single day, get it looked after. You know, it's just like getting the, the blood test. You should be getting screened for um, mental health problems and dealing with them. Because and also, it goes back to that as well. If your family has a history, you're like, oh, yes. well, actually three of my fucking male relatives all killed themselves. And, you know, my mom always says that, you know, she she has a low mood. She has a like, you know, what, what did Winston Churchill call his a fucking dark dog or something that used to follow him? Oh, yeah, yeah. um, like if you're like, oh, that's clearly in my family that there's some sort of depression that afflicts us. Again, makes sense to talk to people. It, it, and like i know everyone always goes oh yes talk to a doctor or whatever but even just talking to your mates and being like yeah sometimes i have a bit of a low mood at least then they know to fucking look out for you be like oh actually you know johnny over there he's feeling a bit down make sure i text him make sure he's okay oh he actually needs to get help let's let's actually fucking knock down to him and bring him to the fucking doctor if he needs that you know yeah and, and i mean like the thing is like medication psychotherapy support etc these things do reduce suicidality so does religiosity, just by the way. Um, so go to Christ. <laughs> or Allah. Um, but in all seriousness, yeah, look, there are things that can reduce suicidality or reduce or reduce the risk of someone going on to commit suicide. And very clearly, that's something that's really important because if you're putting all of this time and attention into reducing cardiovascular disease in 40 years, but you're depressed every day and potentially at risk of ending your life in a second, that's something that's important. Again, homicide was the third one. Clearly, that's something that is somewhat beyond your control. Of course, learn to fight. You can't carry a gun around in Ireland, so I'm afraid you can't protect yourself in that sense. But um, yeah, there's still, you know, it's not, it's something that's probably at high up in the ladder in Ireland, I wouldn't say. But even the other things are, 
like when you're in your fi- the kind of 15 to 34 bracket, for example, like malignant neoplasms, i.e. cancer, would be high up in the cause of death there too. But they're not that preventable in the sense that it's not primarily your lifestyle that has led you to that at that point, but rather potentially some of those family history components, mm-hmm. randomness, you know, that is cancer. And then, of course, the, the screening elements that we discussed earlier, such as cervical cancer, for example. So the screening kind of looks after that point. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're, they're the leading cause of death and some of the things you might want to screen for. And then as they we get past that kind of 34 age, what are we looking at? Yeah, so we're looking at the kind of the standard players, really. You know, you're, again, accidents are always, always feature quite strongly. And then you've got your cancers, cardiovascular disease, lung disease, such as COPD, um, and other things such as diabetes, liver disease, et cetera, that all come into the picture, but that are all going to be risk reduced if you're not smoking, not taking drugs and eating a healthy diet and exercising as we discussed previously. Yeah, like I think cancer is the one that's the most non-preventable now obviously there's certain cancers yeah. that are clearly preventable but even still there just seems to be this element of just bad luck you know yeah. you know it's like very messy you've just you had a genetic risk and you did this environmental you were exposed to this environmental thing boom got it you could have the fucking perfect genetics exposed to this environmental thing got it you know fucking randomness boom got it you know so that's the one that for me at least when i think of like preventive healthcare and you're like what can you do like yeah clearly there are things that are cancer protective like again if you have a history of colon cancer in your family you might be like okay well maybe i'm going to eat less red meat and maybe i'm going to make sure i eat enough fiber you know there's clearly some things that you can do especially if you are aware of this but even still there's just that element of randomness and again i would love to say that we had these like fucking i don't know liquid biopsies or complete metabolomic sequence and you know screening that we could do that you could just get a drop of blood and be like oh you actually have a cell of cancer you know but unfortunately we don't have that stuff you know maybe we might in the future but we don't right now and so cancer is kind of one of those ones that's like there's not much we can do here from a preventive standpoint right cardiovascular disease though there's a lot that we can do here you know, like I'd be pretty, pretty impressed if we were able to get things down to just the genetic components of cardiovascular disease, because there's always going to be certain individuals that are just predisposed to cardiovascular disease, regardless of what they do. But if we got that down, we would be fucking saving many, many lives, you know. Um, but anyway, look, we'll move on to the next one, unless you've anything to say on that. No, it's all good. Yeah. So we kind of touched on this earlier on. But the next one is going to the doctor. Like, it's, it sounds kind of stupid when you say it. You're like, yeah, just go to the doctor. That's clearly going to help with your health management. You know, because you're like, the doctor is the person to go to for health management, right? So going to the doctor makes sense. But this is just something that people don't do. And I say this completely in the knowledge that I've never been to the doctor apart from the fact that, you know, I used to box and they have to do like a full screening for that, check your balls and everything. Um, but other than that, I haven't gone to the doctor, you know, I actually have a GP appointment, appointment booked. So we'll, we'll end that streak. Um, but this is just something that you should do. You should do it. If you have any signs, symptoms, injuries, fucking whatever that you're like, I don't know what's going on here. I need someone else that's clearly medically trained 
to give me a better interpretation. The other thing about this is, especially if you live in a country with, you know, socialized or somewhat socialized medicine, you're already paying for it, rather, whether you go or don't go. So you might as well <laughs> fucking go get the use of it, right? And this is really important for men because with women, I, I find, and I think it's well supported by the literature, that they'll actually go and interact with their, their GP or their doctors or whatever. Whereas guys will be like, oh yeah, I've actually been bleeding from my asshole and I just, I didn't go to the doctor. No, I'm just, I didn't want to, you know? Rightfully so. You know, you don't want some poking around your bum, do you? <laughs> no, in all seriousness, obviously I'm very pro going to the doctor and would be in favor of it, whether it be for regular uh, checkups or screening that are recommended by your doctor at a particular interval, um, or it's just something that maybe you noticed a particular symptom. You're like, ah, I don't know, maybe I should get this checked. You know, there's a lot of things that people just will Google and see if they can deal with themselves. Like, they notice a new mole on their arm and it's getting a bit bigger and it looks a bit irregular and they've been out in the sun a lot. And it only takes, you know, very short periods of time for certain skin cancers to become very aggressive and uh, spread to other organs and actually kill you, you know, and skin cancer is actually very common in Ireland, surprisingly, um, or not surprisingly, considering we're all pale and pasty, but I guess given that we don't get much sun, you mightn't expect it, but still very common. So those types of things, um, would be things that would be worth, you know, going to the doctor for, or maybe you've noticed you're becoming very breathless lately, or you've got um, an injury that you thought would, should have healed by now, like a calf strain or something, and it's just not healing, it's not healing, it's not healing. Maybe you need to be referred for a scan, or maybe it's something that's not just a calf strain, like a DVT or something else. So there's so many different things that can go wrong with your health. It's not worth being anxious about everything, but if you have clear changes in particular, symptoms or signs or things that you've noticed with your health over time don't wait it's not that expensive particularly in in, in ireland and, and other countries who have um, socialized medicine um, of some form or semi-socialized um, it's not that expensive to go to your doctor for many people and if it is far beyond your budget i you might have access to a medical card or something along those lines that makes it a bit cheaper and um yeah just just get it looked after hundred percent. And this also kind of goes into an, another point that's tangential to this. And that's like, don't just go to the nearest GP. Like that could be, you know, the fine protocol for you, but that GP might be shit for the issues that you deal with. You know, like you might be like, oh, this is just a GP that's, you know, been down the road from my family home for the last fucking 200 years or whatever. <laughs> um, but you might be like, actually, I, I don't know, I'm a woman and I have woman issues that I want to be get dealt with and that gp is a 70 year old man and he just hasn't kept up with the research and if i say anything he's just like oh we'll just go on the pill or whatever like the solutions he's given to your problems they don't seem like good solutions for you like you can shop around you can go to a different gp you know and again like that is a bit of a privileged position like if you're only if just one gp in your town like you're kind of fucking in a bad place but it might make sense for you to go to a town over or a bigger city or whatever and get proper GP care for what you have going on or proper doctor care for what you have going on, you know? Um, and I know, like, I know people will say from this being like, Oh, well, if you shop around for your GP, you know, are you just effectively becoming like the American model where, you know, they get a, see an ad on TV and they're like, Oh, I want to get prescribed this. And then they go to their GP or whatever, their family doctor or whatever. And the doctor's like, no, you're not getting that. And then they just go to a different GP that will 
prescribe them that drug you know um, and that's relatively prevalent like i know so many people in ireland for example that just go to certain gps because they prescribe trt and it's like oh yeah like you you're on medically prescribed trt um you're not just doing fucking steroids when they're literally a 23 year old man who had a t or, or had a testosterone level of like 400 500 or something you know which like yeah you can improve that where it's not like you know perfect by any means but it's not bad <laughs> you know um definitely not warranting uh, trt and um, so like yeah there's a degree of shopping around but also look don't be a, a dickhead with it you know absolutely and i mean that is something that is very common in ireland where their family will, you know, your family will, uh, I've always seen a particular GP. And despite having so many complaints about this GP and every time you go to them, go to them, you're always giving out and your whole family are giving out about the incompetence. This happens a lot where someone will not change GP because, you know, all we've, we've always been with him or her and we don't want to change now. You know, since you were a kid, you've been going to them and they have all your records, but you have the option to switch, you know, um, whether you don't have to tell them that they're crap. You could say, oh, you look, we've had a change. Them. You can if you want, absolutely. You know, feedback is valid. Or you could say, oh, we've had a change of location or, you know, I've changed jobs and it's easier for me to go somewhere else or blah, blah. Um, and that's perfectly fine. You are allowed to do that. And then related to that is that your GP can do the adequate screening that you potentially need. <laughs> so that really does help. Um the next thing is also related to that, and that is medication. We touched on earlier on when we were talking about don't do drugs. This is occasion where drugs can be good, right? Um, you know, I'll let you talk about this, Gary, because this is something that you talk about a lot, or at least you think about a lot, because fitness enthusiasts aren't exactly the most keen on certain drugs. Yeah, like fitness enthusiasts generally aren't in favor of taking medications unless of course they're anabolic steroids or other <laughs> fat burning drugs um but in general people aren't too fond of taking medication because of whatever reason things they've read things they've heard perceptions about them not being natural or being harmful etc and all drugs carry risks okay including medications but the way that medical decisions are made is balancing the benefits against the risks both short term and long term and the types of medications that, you know, we would be thinking about here from a prevention perspective would be things like, for example, statins for high um, LDL cholesterol or cardiovascular disease risk or blood pressure medications. If you've got high blood pressure, these types of things that are generally very low risk drugs that have cumulative effects um, on reducing risk over decades. So with some medications, if you, you might wait until you're diagnosed with a particular disease in your 50s or 60s, and then you take that medication for that disease. But for others, you're managing risk factors long before the disease is actually manifest. Okay, so you're trying to prevent the incidence of a stroke by keeping your blood pressure down and managing that long in advance so that that blood pressure of, let's say, 150 over 90 doesn't have 40 years of exposure to your system to predispose you to that risk because you've taken care of it nice and early because of one appropriate screening and two appropriate intervention whether that be diet and lifestyle change or medication which is required for many individuals so they're the types of things that that can reduce your risk over a number of years obviously there's plenty of other medications that could that someone could be on for long periods of time 
whether it be various forms of hormone replacement therapy, um, a disease for maybe a, a kidney disease that is in your family. You know, I've got a client who's got uh, polycystic kidney disease, something that is has been inherited or genetic risk. And that's something that he would consider from a, a medical perspective because there's specific uh, medications. Of course, there are many, many, there's literally infinite conditions that you like could- Like ones are another clear one that you know people- have, rag on sorry you kind of cut out there i said psychiatric ones clearly another one that people are like oh don't take that yeah. the natural route and the person's literally suicidal ideations and you're like oh yeah like the natural route we'll go with that one 100 percent, and that's something that's a, a big one because very often for depression in particular people will be very hesitant to take antidepressants when in fact like generally they're they're at least the, the modern ssris very low risk long-term side effects aren't really an issue, just short-term tolerability, and they might stop you from being suicidal or just hating your life, which is very clearly a positive thing. So the like medical decisions are obviously not to be guided by our advice or your own intuition, but rather by a doctor's advice. So if you've got a condition that is going to affect you for the, for the rest of your life, clearly medicine is a potentially important and certainly viable option for you. And another thing just on that as well is that very often people will put off that decision to take medication for as long as possible. So an example of that would be, if you go to your doctor and you've got high blood pressure or high cholesterol, let's say, they might say to you, okay, what I want you to do first is let's try some lifestyle changes for the first three months or six months or whatever interval they choose, and then come back and we'll retest. And then they retest and things have kind of changed, but you're still in the moderate to high risk category. And you might be saying to yourself, oh, maybe I just didn't try hard enough. Give me another three months. And you come back three months later and it's the same situation. And you're always in this kind of perpetual cycle of thinking, oh, now is the time I'm going to change something or I'm going to add in this supplement or change my diet for the good. I'm never going to eat salt again, never going to eat out again. In reality, you know that that commitment is far beyond you. When in fact, taking a, um, relatively low dose of a relatively safe drug could potentially reduce that risk long term. So if you care about your health, medicine is something you need to be thinking along with that caring. Mm. Yeah, like I don't think we need to labor the point too much on that. Yeah. Next one, very much re related to going to the doctor, it's going to the dentist. This is one that people skip out on all the time. And look, it, this is both immediate prevention and long term prevention because. Gum disease uh, plaques, you know, around your teeth uh, are also related to heart disease. So there's that aspect. But also, if you're not able to chew your food when you're older because you have no teeth, you're not going to have uh, a great time in your old age. And sarcopenia is probably going to hit you a little bit harder than the person that's actually able to eat their food. You know, do you have anything to say on going to the dentist, Gary? Because it's a pretty straightforward foundational thing. Like we could also include in this brushing your teeth, flossing your teeth, doing all that stuff. Um, would you have anything to say on that? Yeah, look, I'm not going to stand here in my soapbox and tell you that I'm the best flosser or the best for going to the dentist. I'm not. Um, but I brush my teeth for a play to me. I floss the occasional time. <laughs> I try to make it a habit, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one. But yeah, look, obviously, go to, go to the dentist for a checkup. I'm not sure what the actual recommended frequency of, of a dental checkup is. All I know um, is you go to your dentist, your dentist will be like, 
these are good things these yeah. are good things this is what we need to look at and then they'll just tell you how frequently to come and also this is one of the things where like dentists are probably the only profe- profession that tell you exactly how you can never see them again right they're like oh this is exactly how you can prevent ever seeing me again and people still don't do it yeah um, and I think I put myself closer to that camp, unfortunately. So, yeah, I think this podcast will be a trigger for me to go and see my dentist after a, a long break. Last time I was there, I was getting a, pull to, a tooth pulled. And uh, I think that was probably reactive uh, because I had an infection, I had an abscess. So maybe I could have prevented that if I floss better. There you go. You know, or just brush your teeth rather than you know, the once a week that you do it now. Okay, I do brush my teeth <laughs> multiple <laughs> times a day. Go on. All right, we'll move on to the next one. And this is just pretty straightforward. Obviously applies to different countries differently, but just getting adequate health insurance, you know, pretty straightforward thing you can do to ensure that your health stays in a good place. Because while, yeah, you might have socialized medicine in your country, that might not be what you need. You might need more than that. Now, this doesn't apply to some countries, even though, like say, for example, in Canada, like their medical system, you kind of aren't allowed to have private. Like that's why everyone in Canada that wants to get something sorted, they go to America because if their national system, as far as my understanding, anyway, if their national system has that whatever treatment, surgery, screen, whatever, uh, you know, for everyone, you're not allowed to do, like pay to get to the top of the line, right? So if you're like, oh, I broke my arm and I need to get fucking screening, like they'll do that right there and then. But if you're like, oh, this is something that's a longer term thing, you just go onto the list, right? Whereas if you get adequate health insurance in most other countries, like for example, Ireland or England or you know a lot of countries in Europe, you're able to kind of jump to the top of the list because you're like, oh, first of all, your health insurance will play, pay for a certain thing. But depending on the level of health insurance that you have, you might be able to go private for that and get it sorted in a shorter time frame, which might improve the quality of your life, might improve certain aspects of your health in general, and it might be the thing that you need. But we can't tell you what level of health insurance you need. Neither of us are health insurance brokers or companies that sell health insurance. But for the vast majority of people, it probably makes sense to get some form of health insurance. And especially in the health and fitness world, people just do not look at this, do not think about this. And then all of a sudden they're 40 and they're like, oh fuck, actually I need to go to the doctor and I have no health insurance and I just have to wait. I have to be on the system, you know? Yep. Not much else to say about that. You know, I have health insurance, you have health insurance and uh, yeah, it's something that you should look after if you are in a position to do so financially and if you care about your health mm-hmm. um the next thing then is somewhat related to that to the discussion we were just having and that's knowing your rights and entitlements in your country right regarding your health like are you entitled to free teeth cleaning are you entitled to checkups are you entitled to free medicines what are you actually entitled to and like what are your rights relevant to that because if you don't know that you're probably not taking advantage of the system to its fullest, right? And I don't mean just like, you know, being a fucking scrounger and being like, oh, I'll just fucking get everything because I'm already paying for it. But I mean, like, if this is what they're saying, oh, you need to go to the, the dentist. Like, I think in Ireland, like say, for example, I getting your eyes tested in Ireland, it, I think that's paid for, or getting glasses, that's what's paid for, you know? Like your PRSI contributions, they pay a certain amount towards that, right? I think it may be even eye tests. I don't know. But either way, you know, you should know your rights and entitlements as it's prevalent or as it is relevant for you in your country, 
right? And look, you're not going to be able to know absolutely everything. But if you're looking into this and you're like, okay, well, what am I actually entitled to in terms of medical care? If I don't have health insurance, you know, how does that change if I do have health insurance? What are my entitlements with regards to managing my dental yeah, oral hygiene, whatever, you know, look into that stuff. It's obviously very relevant for certain countries because certain countries might have more or less uh, rights and entitlements than others. Like if you're in America, in certain states, you're going to have different entitlements versus other states, right? So you need to be aware of that because it's so easy to have an issue that you are actually already paying to fix and not taking advantage of the, the fix for it. Um, but anyway, Gary, do you have anything to, to say on that? I suppose the only thing really is just to, to add to, like, obviously considering your rights and entitlements at the governmental level, but also within um, your profession and professional body or employer. There's obviously, uh, you know, certain, obviously very large companies in particular will often have um, particular um, health and benefits or bonuses for their uh, staff, whether it be covering an annual checkup or something along those lines. Those so types like of things. Gym memberships and yeah. yeah, like I don't know all the ins and outs of all of that, and obviously it it can it varies depending on where your company's based, where you're working, etc. But you know, look into it, consider it. Hundred percent. And then the final one we're going to effectively breeze through because we are not financial advisors, but this is actually so important and touches so many of the other aspects of the things that we've been talking about. And this is get your finances in order, like foundational health habit or health practice that everyone just go, Oh yeah, we'll just brush that under the, the carpet. Don't talk about politics or money, but unfortunately money makes a difference in the world, right? So you can't just ignore it. You have to get your finances in order. And I don't mean like, Oh, you know, budget and get a better job, you know, put your money towards this X, Y, and Z. I don't mean that. I mean, actually just have an idea of like where your money is going. Is this money covering your health needs? Like, are you in a position where you can look after yourself in your old age? For example, you might be in a country whose, you know, old age pension is just constantly being kicked down the road. It's like, Oh, it was 62. Now it's 65. Now it's 68. And by the time you are hitting your pension, it's probably going to be fucking 75, you know? So it's like, is that okay with you? You know, because everyone is sold a pension as in you're paying into the pension pot for your future, but that's not the way pensions work. You're paying into the pension pot to pay for the people that are on their pension right now. Right. So what happens in your country if you're in an aging country and, you know, there's no younger people to pay into the pension? You know? What happens then? Um, are you able recording? Uh, are you able to su support yourself into your old age? Do you have some sort of pension in place, whether it's a government pension, is that going to cut it? Or if it's a personal pension that you're contributing to, you just have to look into those things. And again, we're not in a position to give you financial advice. But it is something that you need to look into yourself. Like, who's going to look after you even? Like, how are you going to pay them? You're older now. Oh, uh, what, do you need a carer? Are you going to go to a care home? Like, all of that kind of stuff. You need to look into it. Like, do you have investments? Do you have cash? What are you prioritizing? Like, how are you going to look after yourself as you age? What are you going to do if there's a, an issue that crops up? Heart disease, you know, you break your leg, you do fucking whatever, your kid is sick what's going on, right? Um, are you going to sell your home when you're older? Is that how you're going to fuel your pension? Are you going to live in a, a care home? All of those different things you need to look out for, but also in the shorter term as well, like 
even getting life insurance, you know, this is stuff that, you know, if you have kids and you don't have life insurance, like it's kind of like fucking Russian roulette where you're like, oh, well, what happens to these kids after, if I just accidentally died? And as we've just covered, accidents kill <laughs> a lot of humans, <laughs> right? So do you have life insurance? Is it adequate life insurance? Is it a term policy? Is it a whole of life policy? There's all these different questions that you have and you just need to sit down and go, where the fuck are my finances? Where are they at? How are they going to support me, my children, my family into the future? Am I actually setting myself up correctly for the future in terms of my pension, in terms of how I'm allocating my resources? Am I making enough money? Am I not? You might not be able to solve certain things, but at least having a conversation and an idea of, oh, this is what we're doing. This is the plan of action. We're having a conversation with your spouse going like, this is where I have all my money. You know, it's like this, they're in this account, they're in this account. This is how you access those accounts. Like that kind of stuff is important because you might have different investment accounts over here, here and here, and then you die. And it's like, well, they're basically chasing you to kind of go, well, I don't know like your estate effectively is chasing you going like, I don't know where he has all the money. Where was he hiding it? Was it just under the mattress? You know, who fucking knows? Um, but as I said, look, we're not financial planners. We're not financial advisors. It just makes sense for you to look at your finances because they are so relevant to your overall health, your socioeconomic status, etc. Do you have anything to say on finances, Gary? And if not, wrap us up. Yeah, I mean, the final thing just to note is that, yeah, as you said, you should get your your finances in order because again, in our age, when we're thinking about non-communicable disease, we're thinking about things like neurodegenerative disease, for example, Alzheimer's disease. These things potentially increase your care needs later in life. You may need a nursing home. You may need a private home care assistant. You may need meals on wheels, you know, some sort of food delivery service when you're older and you will require money for all of that. So having an idea of how you're going to fund that um, is obviously really important. So look, there's not much else to be said about that. If you can try to get your finances in order, make a plan. And uh, obviously there's better people to advise on that. And you can hire a financial planner if you need more help with that. So if you'd like help with something else, like your health and fitness goals or pain and rehab or getting as strong as you possibly can, we do have coaching spaces available. So you can get in touch with us. The information will be below in the description box. And if you'd like to get in touch with any of us, either at triage method on Instagram or any of our respective coaches on Instagram or our emails, you can contact us and ask us any question you have about coaching or just fill in the coaching application below and we will get back to you with any information that you require. Otherwise, we do have a uh, service as well that's offered for coaches. So we've got a member site where we are posting educational content that is not available to the public. So if you'd like to subscribe to that, that's the coaches corner. You can subscribe to below. We also have more free information on our triage method Instagram, our Facebook page, triage method community as well as a facebook group and finally our newsletter the triage method newsletter more of an email that goes out an informative email not particularly a newsletter but it goes out each week and that's going to give you some useful information that again isn't released on our public social media so i recommend that you do all of that and if you could do one final thing for us that would be leave a rating on the podcast and share it if you enjoy it with a friend or with your audience on social media we would greatly appreciate it other than that i hope you all have a fantastic week month year whatever it is peace out